Hi, I'm Ben Harold, and this is the View from the Farm podcast. I've uh, got quite a few things to cover today in the world of farming and my, my work as an ag journalist. Uh, definitely, as we get in November here, we're making some more progress on harvest, and we I guess if you give a, a theme to this episode, it's a, it's a history and harvest episode. I uh, got to talk with some uh, a farm family that has a Missouri Century Farm. It's actually a, a century farm two times over. I was working on the story about them for Missouri Farmer today and uh, going to share a little bit about their story. It was pretty pretty exciting to get to talk with them and kind of hear about the history of that family farm and kind of how they've kept it going and in the family so long. And then, uh, yeah, like I say, with the calendar flipping from October to November, kind of want to give an update on how we're doing on harvest progress you know, both around here, kind of Missouri, Iowa, Illinois, but then also looking at the, the country as a whole and just kind of how we're doing on corn and soybean harvest progress, even going to take a look at cotton and rice as well, just kind of hitting some of the the major crops there anyway. And yeah, I got some updates on that. And then going to talk a little bit about trade. Um, it's been the news here lately, the, the U.S. and China have kind of had people going back and forth, uh, you know, trying to maybe uh, thaw things a little bit in that relationship and kind of promote some ag trade while they're at it. But yeah, I think uh, it's been an interesting topic. It was a story I was working on kind of this uh, presidential administration's approach to trade because, of course, each each new administration kind of has their own way of doing that and their own priorities and has has impacts for, for those of us out there on the farm. So going to talk about that a little bit. But yeah, pretty excited about the rundown, excited about the, the weather perked up a little bit here for the first week of November and is kind of warmed up a little after a pretty, pretty chilly weekend across a lot of the country. And so pretty, pretty excited to, to have some, some good farm weather here for getting back into harvest and putting the pedal to the metal, trying to get things done. I know there's some farmers out there, you know, maybe just only like halfway done with harvest, something like that, or even less, but then other parts of the country, and depending on what yields were with drought conditions, there's, there's some farmers who are done out there. So we'll kind of cover the, the range there anyway, but yeah, I want to start with this century farm story. Um, it's always interesting to me, kind of that intersection of farming and history and, you know, how, how people end up where they are. And then when a, when a family gets a farm, you know, that can, that can give them a, a tie to a certain place, to a certain piece of land. And even a, a family or a person that might be more of a wandering sort, you know, that can provide an anchor. And uh, the, the farm I got to talk to this week, it's the Clay Family Farm uh, in Monotaw County, Missouri. The mailing address is Jamestown, but the, the closest little town is Lupus, Missouri, uh, right there along the Missouri River. And yeah, it was interesting that, uh, you know, talking with John Clay there and Andy Clay about their farm and uh, pretty, pretty cool to hear the history. And yeah, I'm going to share some of that with you, just kind of how they got there and, and how they kept things going. And, you know, uh, talking with John as the father and Andy's his son, um, Andy is the seventh generation to, to farm that land. And of course, his dad, John's the sixth. And um, Andy has some kids now who are, of course, just kids, but getting to help out on the farm. And so they're in an eighth generation to work on that that operation. And yeah, as far as, you know, the, the history of that farm, John was was kind of filling me in. It, it, you know, the family's well-researched and they've passed down stories and they they know, you know, their, their people came over from England 
And it's just interesting, kind of the little, I guess, seemingly random things in history that, that lead to our, our families being where they are. But uh, John was saying there was a tradition in England, you know, when you had inheritance wealth passed on to the sons or the daughters, the, the oldest got the, the vast majority of the inheritance at that time in England. And the rest of the, the, the offspring got kind of like a token inheritance. And so, you know, their, their direct ancestor, um, his, his name was John as well. He was Captain John Thomas Clay, born in the, the late 1500s there in England. And anyway, he, he knew, you know, he wasn't the firstborn, and so he knew he wasn't going to get a big inheritance. And he was a person who traveled some already. He was, uh, you can see with the captain title, um, Captain Clay was involved uh, with, with the British military, and he he'd been to America. It was 1613. They sent him to Jamestown, Virginia, which of course is the first permanent English colony in the New World. And uh, they sent him there to kind of protect the the settlers, the colonists there. And it was it was a pretty tenuous time. I know just looking back on history, you know, it's a, a trivia thing you might learn in school or something that Jamestown was the first permanent settlement, and there's still you know, obviously people there today, but at the time it was, you know, kind of seemed like anything but permanent. They were, it was the the, the location they picked for Jamestown and, and obviously agriculture is going to be the, the common theme of this story, but it was kind of a tough place to earn a living. Um, they, they sort of picked the spot where, where the original Jamestown settlement is for kind of defense purposes. It was along, you know, the James River and uh, where it flows out into the the bay and the ocean, but they they sort of had their spot there along the the shore where it seemed like you know you could kind of build a little fort and kind of be defended by water on most sides and kind of take care of yourself. But they the the problem with that was that you know the the water was they were close enough to the ocean. It was kind of the James River sort starts to widen out there into kind of like an estuary type thing where the the fresh water meets the ocean. So certain certain times a year. And depending on the tides, they, you know, didn't have really good drinking water. And it was kind of a, a swampy situation, the little area they were at. And, you know, the, the little bit of wildlife didn't sustain them very well. And, you know, they're trying to, trying to learn to grow crops. And a lot of the people in that initial group didn't have a lot of agricultural background. And so they didn't know a lot about growing things, certainly not in the, a totally different climate like they were uh, there in Virginia. And then, you know, they were reliant on trade with the native population. And uh, uh, John Smith, the, the name you've maybe heard of, he was, you know, kind of pretty instrumental in maintaining those decent relationships with the natives there. But he got hurt and had to go back to England and things kind of deteriorated. So they weren't, you know, it was more of a antagonistic relationship then. And so they weren't getting, you know, couldn't really trade for food, um, couldn't really grow it or hunt it very well where they were at. And so they were kind of reliant on these supply ships coming from England. And, you know, one, one group of them got scattered in storms and they had a really, really rough winter, a lot of starvation. And, you know, basically at one point, um, just a few years before uh, this, this ancestor of the Clay family, Captain John Thomas Clay, a few years before he came there, the, the colonists there had actually decided to give, give up the ghost and kind of were getting back in some ships they had sort of rebuilt and were starting to sail back down the river to head back whenever a, a resupply ship arrived and they ended up staying there. And uh, yeah, 
soldiers like Captain John Thomas Clay kind of helped protect things, kind of helped shore up the buildings. And, and then they actually realized it was a pretty good area for growing tobacco. And so they could grow that, and that was a cash crop. And then, of course, sell that back in England and get money to, to finance these supply ships coming back. And, and eventually, as they, they kind of the population there grew, they did learn more about agriculture and growing, growing their own food there in Virginia. But uh, Captain Clay, was he was there in the, the, like I say, the earlier days, relatively speaking, of that settlement at Jamestown. And so he had the status. They called them ancient planters, basically people that had been there kind of since since the start or close to it. And they got tracts of land in Virginia and he got some land. And then even when his father passed away a couple decades later, um, and again, he just got the token inheritance, but he used that money to to come to America permanently and bring bring some different settlers with him to help get them set up on on the land he'd been given as an ancient planter. So the the family basically kind of had their start there in Virginia, but uh, talking with uh, the the present day farmers there at the clay farm in Missouri, um, yeah, they were talking about it was that progression where the you know non firstborn people kept you know striking out from England to America and then farther west looking for opportunities just because, you know, again, they weren't going to get the lion's share of the inheritance. And so for a while, you know, the, the family just kind of kept going there in, in Virginia. But then it was a guy named Jeremiah Walker Clay who ultimately ended up in Missouri and staked out the, the homestead claim there where the, the family still farms now over 200 years later. But Jeremiah Clay, he was born in 1765 there in Virginia. And the I was reading their, their family history they had, and they described him as being of an adventurous nature, which I think we'll definitely see was the case. He, uh, you know, had some farming background there in, in Virginia because that was, you know, what, what the family, you know, they were living off the land basically on their, their land grants and various land they'd uh, accumulated there in Virginia. But then, um, so he was born in 1765, but then eventually he decided to head farther west and went from Virginia to Kentucky, which, you know, Kentucky was getting a little more people into it settled at the time, but that was way more the Western frontier. You know, you kind of think about Daniel Boone times. That was more more frontier than Virginia, for sure. Once, once settlers had kind of passed, there was that moment in American history where we kind of, you know, the, the settlers of European descent kind of breached the, the sort of natural physical boundary of the Appalachian Mountains. And once they kind of started getting into Kentucky, then it was, you know, westward expansion was on. But uh, anyway, Jeremiah Clay, he, he went from Virginia to Kentucky and then eventually on to St. Charles, Missouri, um, kind of living near where the, the courthouse is there in St. Charles, still kind of the old historic part of town. But, uh, you know, he, he was there for a while and, and had some kids there um, in the St. Louis area there at St. Charles. But then finally, the, the sort of the, the fateful turn in the family history um, in 1816, so 207 years ago, um, him and his family and some other uh, pioneer families he'd, he'd met from Kentucky headed out kind of into the interior of Missouri. And it was, you know, there, there were settlements, there were towns, especially along the Missouri River mostly, but it was, it was a pretty wild and un, unsettled interior of Missouri at the time. It was, you know, not, not statehood yet, but the, you know, it was known as Missouri Territory and the territorial capital was back in St. Louis. And then even when it became a state in 1821, five years later, 
um, a lot of the, well, the, the first state capital was there in St. Charles, which again reflected the, the vast majority of the Missouri population was on the, um, the eastern side of the state still. So when these, you know, Jeremiah Clay and these other settlers were heading out, they kind of, I think, you know, talking with John Clay today, he was saying it, it, they probably went in a group kind of for protection and sort of, you know, that mutual support as they went. But they basically just started out walking and taking covered wagons and, and driving livestock ahead of them along the north side of the Missouri River and kind of leaving, you know, what you would consider civilization there in uh, St. Charles and heading out into, into central Missouri. And they, they walked, went along the Missouri River for a while until Boone County, um, kind of in the area where the, the I guess you call it town of Nashville is, it's an unincorporated community in Boonville, but around there's where they crossed the Missouri River. And then pretty quickly after you cross the other side, they're in what, you know, was now Montauk County. And uh, talking with uh, John Clay, you know, today about what, what drew the family to that spot. And he said back then, you know, Jeremiah Clay and his family, they saw, you know, some fertile bottom ground along the river where you could probably grow some crops and um, some, some wooded hills where there'd be plenty of timber for building things. And that he built a log cabin there that the family initially lived in. So it was, you know, kind of that mix of bottom ground, some good timber, um, abundant wildlife and water resources, you know, some, some creeks and streams and good, uh, good water opportunities because that, you know, whether it's Jamestown 200 years earlier or, you know, Montauk County then or, or even today 200 years later, a water source is kind of the constant in human settlement and civilization. You pretty much have to have that if you're going to thrive. But anyway, all those things check the boxes for a early 1800s farmer. And so he set up shop there and um, yeah, got, got the farming operation started. And from the start, you know, they were growing crops, they had livestock, they were, you know, getting the operation going. And it's, it's kind of interesting, Jeremiah Clay, he lived until 1845. And the, the family now they have his hat, and it's hanging on the wall with some of their other farm memorabilia, including a, a land grant signed by President John Quincy Adams that they got, it was probably 10 or 15 years after they came to the land, they, they had filed the paperwork kind of claiming the land at a local office, but they got that official U.S. government land grant a little bit later, and it has the, the president's signature on it. So obviously that's a, a special thing the family hangs on to with their other farm memorabilia. But yeah, by, by 1816, they, they'd come to the spot and they were, they were kind of off and running as farmers. And um, it's just interesting then the different generations through the years, some of the things they did and, you know, kind of diversification is a theme talking with uh, John Clay and his son, Andy, about, you know, what's kind of kept them going, kept them in business. And really their, their family has always kind of had an emphasis on that. You know, they've had both the crops and the livestock from the start and pretty much throughout the, I guess, over 200 year history of their farm. And then kind of some business ventures on the side. There was a, a trading post they had for a while there along the Missouri River. And there was a lot of, a lot of travel either by the river, you know, on the river or along it. And so it was a pretty good spot for a trading post. And, uh, you know, they, they even tell the story. They had a, a barrel of whiskey there in their trading post. And if you bought something, you could take a free dip or a whiskey out of there. But then if you didn't make a purchase or a trade, you could pay um, to get a dip or a whiskey. But it was kind of a little little bonus perk, I guess, back 
back before we had the online rewards programs you can enroll in for uh, doing business at certain places. But anyway, yeah, that, that spot, they kind of helped settle that area too. Um, obviously, some of the first settlers of European descent in Montauk County, what's what is now Montauk County, I should say. It's it's interesting. When the state became a state, it had fewer counties and they gradually subdivided those counties. And so yeah, John Clay was saying they've they've been in four counties on their farm and they haven't moved, just with different distinctions. But the last uh several years, the bulk of their time, they've been officially in Montauk County. And anyway, that, that settlement that the family kind of helped settle along the river, uh, the town called Lupus, it was originally that part of the river was known as Wolf's Point, and Lupus is actually the Latin word for wolf, and so that somewhere along the line they started calling that settlement Lupus in, in honor of sort of that, or connection to that previous name of Wolf's Point along the river. But yeah, through the years, there was, uh, you know, the, the trading post, the store, um, uh, it was uh, John Clay's great-great-grandfather, or great-grandfather, um, helped start the Lupus Bank, sold shares of stock in that. And so, again, they had the farming operation, but then they always kind of had some of these other other interests going on. Um, even today, they, they do some custom harvesting, some bulldozer work, and Andy has an outfitter business where he has people on the farm, you know, um, hunting deer and things like that and they host them and get them get them set up to have a good hunting experience so just kind of you know they, they've said obviously there's a lot of just determination and hard work involved in keeping a family farm going that long but then also that that idea of diversification kind of navigating you know the the tough times the 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 farm issues ups and downs the farm economy the great depression all kinds of things like that so there's there's definitely a lot to to navigate through on that but it was definitely interesting talking with them about you know their their long history and kind of the adventurous spirit that led their ancestors there but then also you know just the ups and downs of farming and and the pride i think in you know, being involved in a, a farming operation, I mean, even a, a two-generation farming operation is pretty special, passing that on from one generation to the next. But yeah, for them, you know, several generations just wanting to, to do their part to keep it going. And then, you know, from the get-go, thinking about all the things about that land that drew Jeremiah Clay in and wanting to take care of that that farm. And it, it provides for you and you provide for the land. And uh, that that's still definitely heavy on or pretty pretty top of the list on their mindset is taking care of it and you know getting keeping the soil in place avoiding runoff you know making sure you have good soil quality and health and yeah it's just pretty pretty interesting for sure how they've you know them them talking about that and even this year you know it was a drought year there and and he was choking harvest went pretty quick when it's a drought year because less bushels you cover the ground quicker but you know it's it's something that you know they're they're in it for the long haul and you have those ups and downs but it was really cool to get to talk to them and you know there's there's more of their story there i'm sure in the the article but that was kind of me me running down the the sort of the high points and different things like that but yeah that'll be being missouri farmer today so i have to keep an eye out for that but anyway yeah it's really cool anytime i get to talk to these century farms especially one I mean, over 200 years, there's, I think, 30 farms that were farms in the state of Missouri whenever the state became a state in 1821. And when the state had their bicentennial two years ago, they uh, had a, a program they called those founding farms, uh, founding farms distinction, founding farms program. And uh, that was, you know, kind of cool to think about, you know, a few dozen farms that 
really have been been going longer than there was a state. And there was one a few years ago I talked with that they'd been there since 1804. Um, it's the oldest ones in the state are kind of to that eastern side. But yeah, just hearing their story about coming here in 1804, shortly after the Louisiana Purchase, when the U.S. had just purchased the the claim or the rights to the, the this big chunk of land. And they'd crossed the Mississippi River when it was frozen with ox carts. And there's just some remarkable stories. And I think it is cool that agriculture is something that ties day-to-day life, you know, even back pre-statehood for Missouri and other Midwestern states with modern times, as much as things have changed. That basic element of, you know, needing rain for the crops, um, planning in the spring with optimism, taking care of your livestock, checking on them. There's just these sort of bedrock things that have sort of linked our existence for a long, long time. And I think that's pretty special to get to, to write about and meet with people like that. But yeah, that was that was pretty cool. And then I, I mentioned uh, Andy Clay talking about the harvest there. I wanted to update on our, our harvest numbers anyway. Um, we've got uh, some of the, the main crops. Looking at USDA numbers, uh, I'm recording this on November 3rd, but these came out earlier in the week, uh, released on Monday, October 30th. And basically, we're seeing a lot of progress. The, the national corn crop is 71% harvested. Um, let's see, my state, Missouri, is, yeah, 76% corn harvested. Um, you know, a lot of numbers kind of in that range. Iowa's at 77, Illinois, 81. There's a few states. Um, Ohio's actually only 29% harvested with corn. Uh, Pennsylvania, 37%. So it's kind of a little all over the board, but on the whole, you know, kind of in that two-thirds, three-fourths done with harvest. And that's about on the usual pace, a little bit ahead of the five-year average of 66%. So again, we've had, you know, relatively dry autumn. There's been more rain now that we get into to late, uh, late October had more rain, but the, a lot of October was just sunny, dry weather, you know, harvest as, as quick as you could, more or less. Uh, soybean side, up to 85% harvested. A lot of the southern states are pretty far along, and and even some of the northern you know states are are starting to make progress. You know, looking, let's see, Missouri is 75% harvested on soybeans, and that's actually quite a bit ahead of the usual pace. Usually, just look in recent history, the five-year average Missouri soybean crops only 56% harvested. So again, that good weather, and I think, you know, I've known a lot of farmers that you, you push pause on corn and really go to work on soybeans trying to get you know, get the beans out while you can. And then if it gets a little, little dodgier weather later in the year, that corn holds up pretty well. It's a little easier to get out. But anyway, yeah, making good progress there, quite a bit ahead of pace. And um, Nebraska's soybeans are, yeah, 92% harvested. You know, a lot of states making a lot of progress. Let's see, Iowa, 93%. Again, they're Illinois, 89 So yeah, some states getting toward the finish line on soybeans and obviously making good progress on corn. There's there's a few other states out there not as far along. Um, just looking, let's see, some of, some of the more northern states, I guess, you know, like Michigan and things like that. But, you know, Kentucky, 62%. So yeah, it's a little bit of variation there. But on the whole, you know, beans are coming out pretty quick and getting, getting close to the finish line. And uh, going to touch on cotton harvest. We're right about the halfway point on that. Again, according to the USDA data, 49% harvested. That's kind of right about on the recent average, recent pace, maybe just a tick ahead of that. But um, of course, in my state, Missouri is up to 79%. 
Um, there's some states, Louisiana's getting almost done and Arkansas as well. But then there's there's some other states out there like Georgia and Kansas that are more like a third done with their wheat harvest or their cotton harvest. Sorry, I said the word Kansas and I just reflexively started to say wheat. But yeah, looking at cotton, that is Georgia and Kansas are about a third of the way harvested. So about halfway done on that, but definitely starting to see some progress going there on cotton. And then just to touch on rice, because uh, that, that's another one of those crops that's pretty specialized in the sense that really there's like six states in the U.S. that pretty much grow all the rice, but one of them is my home state, Missouri, so I always keep tabs on that. But yeah, Missouri is 96% done with rice harvest. Na nationwide, we're 95% done. So again, rice is rice is pretty much getting done being harvested, cotton about halfway. Corn and beans were plugging along, but they're still, you know, I was driving, you know, going to that uh, Century Farm interview earlier this week, and there's still quite a few fields of corn and beans out there. So, you know, farmers are making progress, but had some weather delays and some just kind of growth gray damp days in there and anyway you know it's there's still still plenty of time before the the snow really starts flying I would think for a lot of the midwest but you know making making good progress got a couple couple big weeks here coming up and should really start to put a dent in those numbers but anyway yeah that's kind of the the, the harvest progress update um just checking on the drought conditions you know again I've been hearing from some of my crop watchers just you know just can't believe how low some of the ponds are and how dry some of the conditions are. And it's been a pretty, you know, pretty rough year, a lot of places for drought. I know some of the Midwest uh, and some of the high plain states have been catching some rains here the last, last week or two. And I think that's helped somewhat, but, you know, just looking at the map, you know, we still got a ways to go with uh, getting our soil moisture levels back where we want them. We've got you know, probably about a third of the Midwest looks like it's in drought, about a fifth of the high plains. And then really to the south, the drought has been popping up. Um, we talked about kind of along the Gulf Coast states, really, of southern Mississippi, southern Alabama, or yeah, all of Louisiana and Texas having drought. But that's really started to spread. Uh, the, the drought monitor map there breaks it up into southeast and, and south areas. And the southeast is about half in half of the the southeast regions in drought, and then uh, about two thirds of the what they describe as the south region. So, really, a lot of dry conditions down the lower part of the country, um, parts of Virginia, North Carolina, Kentucky, pretty decent sized parts, even some of South Carolina now. But and then pretty much uh, in northern Georgia, and it's creeping in kind of in southwestern Georgia, getting drier. But really, almost all of Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana are in drought. So some of those core southern states really really seeing some dry conditions here as we're at the end of the, the growing season and looking ahead to wintertime. So hopefully some rains down south, some snow, other places will kind of start to catch us up and recharge some of that ground moisture. And uh, yeah, as we start to kind of turn our thoughts more toward the, the off season for, for growing crops. I uh, just wanted to touch on the, the trade story I, I've been working on for Missouri Farmer Today and Iowa Farmer Today and Illinois Farmer Today, but uh, talking about, you know, kind of the, this administration, the Biden administration versus the, the previous administration. Um, the Trump administration was big on the renegotiating the trade deals, these kind of, you know, trade deal to mutually lower tariffs, that kind of thing. And the Biden administration, I think just from ag economists and different um, policy experts I talked with, talking with a guy at the 
University of Missouri has a, they call it FAPRI, it'd be the uh, Food and Agricultural Policy um, Institute. Re yeah, I think, I'm butchering that acronym, but that's what acronyms do for you. But anyway, um, yeah, he was uh, talking about, again, the, the Biden administration's been a little bit more working within the established frameworks um, with existing trade deals, using those mechanisms to kind of resolve trade disputes like Mexico saying they didn't want genetically modified corn, doing that in some negotiations. Um, right, right now, Mexico still has a prohibition. You can't import genetically modified corn for food, for human food products, but you can bring genetically modified corn into Mexico for animal feed. And that's kind of one of the big, big markets there for U.S. crops in Mexico anyway. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of the, the situation there. But I think, again, it shows, sounds like kind of working within frameworks. Um, and that is, I, I got it called up here, the Food and Agricultural Policy Research Institute, the University of Missouri. It's a big, big national, I mean, they look at national issues. But, yeah, headquartered right there at good old MU in Columbia. But anyway, yeah, there's that. And then, of course, uh, the, you know, generally frosty relations, relations with China you know, can have a negative impact on ag trade. And it, it's interesting, you know, we kind of talked about the trade war during the previous administration. And, you know, I, I think the, the current administration has, you know, stayed away from slapping on any more tariffs. But it's interesting, um, Pat Westhoff was the guy I talked with at FAPRI, and he said, somewhat surprising, they haven't cut any of those um those uh, tariffs. And so it's, you know, in a sense, we're still in the trade war, it just really hasn't been resolved. But we have seen in recent weeks, a Chinese delegation came to the US and talked about buying wheat. And they've, of course, still been buying some of our ag products. But, you know, I, I think there's been efforts by the US to kind of pump those numbers back up because China has been the top ag um, export destination here recently. So it's pretty, pretty important market for farmers and ranchers here. Um, just kind of looking at, you know, the, the administration, they've kind of, they sent a U.S. group or, well, I guess there is a U.S. group, more ag, ag export groups over in China right now in early November. And so they've been trying to kind of, you know, build relations, build trade opportunities. And I think it's kind of all, some of this could be building up to a meeting between President Biden and the Chinese president where, you know, trade issues, obviously, there's a good chance would come up. So, you know, kind of working on that market, uh, Japan, Korea, South Korea is also a very important export market. And then um, Mexico and Canada, obviously, are neighbors, pretty big ag export markets, and then uh, the European Union. So, We've seen a lot of that. One one other thing on the um, the current administration policy, they call it fringe shoring. Basically, it's trying to do business with countries who are friendly, who are allies with the United States. And so, I think that's uh, you know kind of been a priority. You've seen you know with with countries here in North America, with the European Union, just trying to you know do business with the countries that are your allies. But I think you know the again some of the people I talked to said that the the double-edged sword of that is you may be sending a message to other people you're less friendly with them and so you know that that's part of why I think there's been these ongoing efforts to kind of shore up relationships with with some of the different trading partners out there but yeah definitely something to watch I, I know you know we talked about beef exports have been down somewhat this year and so it's been you know something something I think a lot of people are watching but anyway yeah that's kind of what I've been working on for Missouri Farmer today um Looking ahead, going to be writing about some 
kind of wrapping up the year in weed control and, and how, you know, drought conditions might have impacts for, for weed control. And then also we've got a package of stories on giving thanks and different people and the roles they play in the communities. So hard to believe we're doing, you know, working ahead on Thanksgiving, giving thanks kind of stories, but the, the fall always just seems to fly along and that seems to be the case again this year. But yeah, that uh, should pretty well do it. I guess one little fun story to, to leave you with as I go, um, the NFL quarterback uh, harvesting corn was a, a story today, November 3rd. Uh, the, the San Francisco 49ers quarterback, Brock Purdy, he went to college at Iowa State University. Um, he's from Arizona, but while he was at Iowa State, he got engaged and, um, well, he had a girlfriend and they've since got engaged and, you know, obviously looking forward to getting married and everything like that. But uh, the 49ers have a bye week this week. They don't have a game scheduled for the weekend. And so with the the week off, anyway, he was in Iowa working with his uh, his girlfriend's family, his future in-laws, helping finish up corn harvest. So there was a video going around of an NFL quarterback out there in the Iowa cornfield working working the combine and loading in the grain cart as it drove along next to him. And so kind of cool to see. He was, uh, like I say, went to Iowa State, had a successful career there, and then was actually the last guy taken in the NFL draft after he graduated college. They uh, I guess somewhat jokingly call that person Mr. Irrelevant because you're the last person drafted. But anyway, he uh, he's made the most of it and has uh, been playing for the 49ers. And now he's getting to get some some harvesting in as well. So they're they're a Super Bowl contender. So we'll see if the uh, you know harvesting corn in Iowa kind of helps uh, get get the mindset right and helps get them all recharged up for the rest of their season. But that was kind of kind of a fun thing to see. And yeah, it's always always fun when people from you know, the, the world of sports or different sectors of the, the country kind of get to get involved in agriculture. So anyway, that should do it for this podcast. Going to get out of here and get, get ready to be in weekend mode, but appreciate you listening. This has been the View from the Farm podcast, and uh, thanks again for listening.